0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, October 6th. I'm Virginia Allen. The Supreme Court's new session has begun. and this term, the nine justices will be hearing cases on everything from affirmative action to election districts and even a case that involves Californians' access to bacon. Heritage Foundation legal scholars and hosts of the SCOTUS 101 podcast, Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith, Join me on the show today to give a preview of the blockbuster cases in this new term. Stay tuned for our conversation after this.
1: Want the inside scoop on what's happening here at the Heritage Foundation? Check out Heard at Heritage, an all-new show replacing the Heritage Events podcast. It'll feature cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement and, of course, the Heritage Foundation's premier events and programming brought straight to you. Check it out at heritage.org slash podcasts.
0: The Supreme Court is back in session and here with us to give a rundown of the big cases are Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. They are legal experts here at the Heritage Foundation and hosts of the SCOTUS 101 podcast. Giancarlo, Zach, welcome back.
1: Thank you for having us. Likewise, thanks.
0: <laughs> so first, can you give us the the 30,000-foot view of, of this term? How many cases are the justices going to hear? How long does the term run?
2: Sure. So we don't know quite how many cases they'll hear yet because they're still accepting new cases for the second half of the term. Uh, but historically, this court takes a little more than 70. Is that right, Zach? 70 cases a term? Thereabouts, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the term runs from the beginning of, of
1: October, usually to the last week of June.
0: Okay. And they'll take a little bit of a break in there over Christmas, right? Correct. Like a month or so.
1: That's right. And you know, the number of cases that this court grants is historically a little bit on the low side. Uh, but for what, they've, uh, what they lack in numbers, they're certainly making up for in terms of the impact... <laughs> <laughs> that many right. of their decisions are having. Okay. Um, and I suspect, uh, you know, last term was certainly a very big term with big cases, the mm-hmm. Dobbs case, uh, among others. And I suspect this term will shape up to be uh, an equally as important term in many ways. Wow.
0: Interesting. All right. So, Giancarlo, you joined us on Monday for our top news edition Mm -hmm. at The Daily Signal just to talk briefly about some of the big cases. I want to dive a little bit deeper into some of the big ones that are on the docket. Uh, And starting with that affirmative action case that you mentioned, if you would, for for those who didn't catch the show on Monday, give us a brief summary of what this case is uh, and what's in store here.
2: Sure. So the cases, there's two cases, uh, and they raise the same issues, um, essentially against Harvard and UNC. And uh, what we found out during Harvard's trial is that Harvard discriminates against Asian and white applicants uh, in order to create extra spots that they give to black and Hispanic applicants. Uh, And the way they do it uh, is they will... They not only give boosts in the academic uh, admissions process to people who are Black or Hispanic, but they will mark Asian students down on a personality rubric. So they will say Asian applicants don't have good leadership skills, or don't have good personal skills, or sort of charisma or whatnot. Very subjective, uh, and they did this is uh, they actually did the same thing many years ago. Against Jewish applicants, keep Jew- Jewish applicants down. But they discriminate against Asians in order to create what they call racial equity uh, across classes to give boosts to uh, black and Hispanic students. Um, and uh, historically, Obviously, racial discrimination of any kind has not been tolerated in the law, but the Supreme Court many years ago said, look, colleges get a special dispensation because if they, because we believe that diversity is a good, racial diversity is a good, and so let the colleges do what they want. But they can't create quotas. They have to use it only as part of a holistic approach. Uh, but the court in that case said, but we anticipate that this kind of thing is gonna end in 25 years. We're not quite at 25 years, but it looks like the court is seriously considering ending the use of race uh, in admissions because, I mean, what we've seen from the Harvard case is you can pretend that these sort of things are benign or good, but they're not. I mean, racial discrimination for one group's benefit is for another group's detriment. Um, And on top of all of that, what we've seen is that these racial groups are completely arbitrary. For instance, when Harvard says black students, it draws no distinction between, say, wealthy Nigerian immigrants uh, and... Uh, the poor descendants of slaves. It draws no distinction between a multiracial person who grew up in Harlem and a multiracial person who grew up in the Hamptons. Uh, it's arbitrary in the extreme, uh, but that is such a cultural push right now to to, to use race this way. Um, but it does not comport with the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equality on the basis of race for everyone. And that's the heart of the issue.
1: And one of the interesting things about this case is you know, these cases were originally consolidated. They were combined for argument. Uh, but when Justice Jackson, Kentonji Brown Jackson, joined the court, they were actually separated out again. They're going to be mm-hmm. argued separately And the reason for that is uh, Justice Jackson, she was on the board of overseers for Harvard University, so she has recused herself from hearing the Harvard case, and I suspect they were separated out so that she could still participate in the UNC case.
0: Oh, that is interesting. Any predictions on what's going to happen?
1: My sense is that uh, the
2: court will probably uh, say in, in some way that at least the way that Harvard and UNC are using race is not lawful. Mm-hmm. Right. You could take a narrow view and say, look, what you're doing is essentially creating quotas, uh, which we said was unlawful, and you could preserve the old precedents, Or you could say, uh, you go a step further and, and strike down the use of race. Now, a number of justices have made their positions clear in the past. Clarence Thomas is not okay with the use of race uh, this way. Uh, the chief justice isn't either. Um, I think we can safely say
1: Justice Alito from past decisions also is not on board. Well, and I think kind of from the 40,000-foot perspective, I highly doubt the justices would have taken these cases onto their calendar unless they were seriously interested in mm. either substantially revisiting those prior precedents or potentially overturning them altogether. Mm. And so unless you disagree, GC, I would think, you know, at the end of this term, the use of affirmative action in higher education will look substantially different than it does today. Mm. Right, but it, but a
2: point to make though is that whatever the court does it is not going to be the end of this okay. because the universities like Harvard are going to try to find a way around it. Hmm. Uh, it the, the court will draw a line, probably a new line, probably a line that uh, people who care about sort of the colorblind application of law like, but the universities will constantly push that line. And so it'll be only the beginning of a new sort of Fight over the use of race.
0: Okay, wow. So we're going to see this probably in the courts again. Oh, for interesting. Sure. <laughs> all right. Well, I I do want to ask you all about a couple of different cases that are are involving elections more or less. So there's a case um, Moore versus Harper and Merrill versus Milligan. In fact, um, the justices heard arguments on Tuesday for the case Merrill versus Milligan. Um, And these cases have to do with redistricting. What exactly are the justices deciding in these cases? How does it involve elections?
1: Yeah, so these are very interesting cases. You mentioned the Merrill versus Milligan case. That involves a challenge to the congressional districts that Alabama uh, drew after the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. Essentially what the plaintiffs in that case are arguing is that Alabama violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act essentially prohibits a state from introducing a rule, practice, or procedure that would discriminate against someone based on their race. Uh, It makes sense. It's been applied in the redistricting context in many, many uh, instances in the past, but there have been problems. The test that lower federal courts are supposed to use in deciding whether a Section 2 violation has occurred is very unclear. Uh, it's led to confusion. It's led to subjective applications, some argue. And so essentially, in this case, Alabama has seven uh, congressional seats. They have seven representatives in the House. And when they drew their districts, they created one majority-minority district. There was one district that had a majority of black voters in it. And so plaintiffs sued the state and said, well, you should actually have two majority-minority districts, not just one. And that your failure to create this second district actually violates the voting rights act a lower federal court agreed with the plaintiffs ordered alabama to draw that second majority minority district but alabama appealed to the supreme court essentially saying that as the voting rights act was interpreted by this lower federal court it would actually require them to violate the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment because it required them to focus on race as the predominant consideration in redistricting Uh, to the exclusion of almost every other traditional redistricting factory, you know, keeping communities together, making sure that districts are compact. And so I think we saw a lot of this play out at the oral arguments, where a lot of the justices focused on what the appropriate test should be, uh, whether Alabama should in fact be compelled to draw this second majority-minority district if it would require them to focus on race uh, to the exclusion of these other factors. And so, again, this will be a very important decision going forward. And hopefully, the court will really provide guidance to legislators who are having to draw these districts because right now, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion on the ground. Uh, legislators feel like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place that no matter what they do, they'll be sued and accused of discrimination. And so I suspect coming out of this case, uh, we will hopefully get a little more clarity in that area. Hmm. Now, the second case you mentioned, Virginia, was Moore v. Harper. This is an interesting case out of North Carolina. It involves the so-called independent state legislature theory. And basically what happened in North Carolina is the state Supreme Court there Uh, declared some of the legislative maps the legislature drew as unconstitutional under the state constitution as being an illegal partisan gerrymander. And so the question here is the U.S. Constitution, the federal constitution, places predominant authority in state legislatures to make election rules and procedures. And so the court's essentially being asked to resolve what role these other state branches of government can and should play, uh, whether courts, state courts can overturn the decisions of the state legislature, whether governors other executive branch officials can step in and play some role too. And so again, this will have very important, very lasting consequences in the lead up, uh, not only to the probably not for the midterms uh, mm-hmm. coming up, but certainly in the lead up to 2024 and subsequent elections.
0: Yeah, we're certainly going to keep our eyes on those cases. That's going to be fascinating to see how those play out. Now, Giancarlo, I know mm-hmm. you had mentioned um, a very significant case revolving sort of environmental issues in a way. Um, Shackett versus Environmental Protection Agency. Explain a little bit about what is being decided and um, how this case will not only impact this one family, but the American people.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll start. The Sackets have an interesting story. They have been in this litigation for about 10 years, uh, and a little more than 10 years.
1: Um, actually I think it's closer to 16 or 17 years GC actually wow. you're, you're this, right you're right it is it has been going that's on a for a long, long battle. time it's hard to believe this saga actually started all the way back uh, around 2007 wow <laughs> I <think>. so, <laughs> what the Sackets wanted to do they bought a piece of property by Priest Lake uh,
2: in Idaho and uh, they wanted to build a house on it mm-hmm. and the federal government came along and said no sorry you can't because we uh, it, your your piece of property um, affects navigable waterways and so is, is uh, governed by the Clean Water Act. And the Sackets looked around at their property and said, well, our property is dry. It's <laughs> not on the lake. It's not next to the lake. It's, there's no water on us. And there's not so much as a creek. What do you mean, navigable waterways? And the federal government said, well, look – From your property, if you cross the road, there's a little ditch, and that ditch connects down a little ways to a wetland, and that wetland connects to a creek, and that creek connects to Priest Lake. So you have what Justice Anthony Kennedy and Justice Anthony Kennedy alone once called a significant (laughs) nexus to a navigable waterway, and so the federal government can regulate you even to the point of not letting you build. Now, this all comes from a case called Rapanos. Uh, The Supreme Court was trying to figure out what the heck do the waters of the United States mean in the Clean Water Act, and uh, the justices split uh, all different ways. But for very technical reasons, Justice Kennedy's solo opinion became the controlling opinion, Mm. and he said it just means – Any land can be governed by the Clean Water Act, provided it has a significant nexus to a navigable waterway. That has spawned, as you can imagine, all sorts of just chaos. Nobody knows what on earth that means. The government naturally has taken a maximalist approach and said – Shocking. Shocking, right? Uh, You are – your land – If you buy a piece of, I don't know, desert in the middle of Death Valley, it is a navigable waterway. Uh, We will regulate it. And people have said, look, this is just not, this is not workable. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments earlier this week uh, and said, it seemed to agree this is not workable. But where they end up drawing the line is going to be, it's really going to be hard to tell. But this is another case in a sort of long line of cases where the federal government has taken extraordinary maximalist positions on its power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Supreme Court has, in several cases, this last term, the term before, said, look, no, you can't do that. Um, and I think we're going to get some kind of decision like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still waiting for the federal government to learn its lesson. I don't think we're going to get <laughs> it's going to learn that lesson anytime soon. Uh, but as long
1: as the Supreme Court is there to remind them to behave themselves, uh, at least things are moving in the right direction. Well, in this case, was brought by our friends over at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Damien Schiff argued it for PLF, did a phenomenal job, and they've really been involved on in this fight, pushing back against this government overreach mm-hmm. uh, for a long, long time. So kudos to uh, to the folks mm-hmm. over at PLF for yeah. taking on this case. This
0: is one of those cases where you're really not sure whether to laugh or cry. I mean, it's, right. it's so bizarre. <laughs> it's been going on for so long. Uh, at the same time, to see that kind of government overreach, to be able to tell a family, you can't build a house on the land that you bought with your hard-earned mm-hmm. money. Right. Wow. All right. So what are... One or two other cases that we should be paying attention to this term.
1: So I think one of the other big cases is the 303 Creative case. Mm. Uh, this is the follow-up to the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case. It's basically a website designer in Colorado is challenging uh, that state's supposed non-discrimination laws, which would require her to essentially make a website uh, for a same-sex wedding, even though she holds deeply held religious uh, objections Uh, to same-sex marriage. Now one of the interesting things about this case, uh, even though it has religious liberty implications, religious liberty undertones, it's actually being brought as a free speech case. Hmm. Uh, And that's interesting because, you know, I'm curious to hear your take, GC, but in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, you know, I think there was some hesitation, some confusion, does cake decorating, does that qualify as speech, is it an act? You know, what is this? I think in this case, because it is a website being designed, uh, it's much more clearly and unambiguously a free speech issue, and so it much more clearly tees up that issue, and I suspect we may get kind of even more clarity surrounding the interplay between free speech and these non-discrimination laws uh, than we did with the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case. (laughs) Um, So this is a very important uh, case, and uh, I'm certainly watching it uh, very closely.
2: Yeah, one that I will add is what I like to call the bacon case, the (laughs) national pork producers versus Ross. Now, if you live uh, anywhere in the country outside of California, you know that California is trying to uh, regulate the way you live, even though you don't live there. They keep passing Again, all sorts shocking. of laws. Shocking, yeah. I know. <laughs> they keep passing all sorts of laws that have uh, nationwide effects, largely because California's economy is so huge that when California puts restrictions on what can and cannot be sold or how in its state, uh, a lot of companies are sort of forced to comply because they can't create uh, they can't create separate markets uh, for different states in the country. So, California passed a law that said. Uh, no pork can be sold in this state unless it complies with, uh, unless the pigs are raised uh, in sort of the uh, these sort of utopian, you know, animal rights conditions. They want
1: the <laughs> pigs to be living in very
2: cushy conditions. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> to so... have the
0: best life possible <laughs> that's right. they're You know, and that's
2: that is that is noble and whatnot. Sure, um,
0: absolutely.
2: Right, but but also it's not how pork is produced anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pork producers uh the way the market works is they create they they sell their pork to sort of distributors and the distributors sell their pork all over the country the distributors so the pork producers um obviously can't create market specific pork they have to sell to the distributors the distributors are not going to create separate markets so uh, the pork producers are in a bind so they essentially have to conform to uh, california's rules which burdens pork producers all over the country. So they have sued and said, look, there's something in the Constitution called the Commerce Clause. And the Commerce Clause says that Congress gets to regulate interstate commerce and a doctrine called the Dormant Commerce Clause, sort of the inverse of that, which means only Congress Hmm. uh, gets to regulate interstate commerce. The states don't get to. What California is doing is regulating interstate commerce. So um, you can't do that. Um, We shall see. It's an interesting case because uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause is not really a favorite doctrine of conservative justices who look at the constitution and say what's well, not really there we sort of need to interpret this very narrowly at the same time there are really interesting implications for say uh the uh, the abortion context mm. because let's say texas says you know uh you may not sell abortifacients into texas or uh, you cannot perform sell abortifacients into texas unless they have met certain testing requirements or whatnot so you've got an interesting issue here that sort of cuts across both ways, both yeah. political aisles. So there you have it. It's a fascinating case. We'll see what we'll see what happens. Yeah,
0: obviously involves a lot more than just bacon. Mm-hmm. So. Fascinating. <laughs> now, last the last term was a blockbuster term. It was wild to see so many big cases. Of course, most notably, the overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs case. Is this term gonna in any way be quite as as big do you think as the last one
2: well my sense and zach feel free to disagree is that i mean there's nothing bigger than the overruling of roe versus wade yeah um the end of affirmative action uh, programs racial discrimination in education or elsewhere would be fantastic Mm -hmm. But again, Roe yeah. versus Wade was Roe versus Wade, and Dobbs was the end of it, and that was enormous. Yeah.
1: Well, I think that was, I certainly agree with that, GC, that Dobbs is an enormous case. It was a huge win for the Constitution, really, in a lot of ways. Uh, but look, I think a lot of the cases this term may have a more subtle but equally as important impact on the day-to-day lives mm-hmm. of many Americans, particularly the election cases, Morby Harper, Merrill versus Milligan, you know, the Dormant Commerce Clause case, mm-hmm. the Baking Case okay. right. <laughs> as you called it GC uh, can have wide-ranging implications on the powers of, of states you know you mentioned the uh, it could also impact you know the abortion debate mm-hmm. and what states can do in that area uh, but it can impact many many other areas as well and so I suspect you know last term was a huge huge term uh, but in many ways I think this term will also, be very very important as Mm -hmm. well right
0: and you all are going to be breaking down so many of these cases continually on your podcast SCOTUS 101 tell us when it comes out how we can find it how we can follow you guys
2: well we it comes out uh, pretty much every Friday that the court is in session and you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts and please leave us a five-star rating
0: (laughs) (laughs) excellent John Carlo Zach thank you guys so much for joining really appreciate your time today
1: our pleasure of course
0: And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast. If you have not had the chance already, be sure to check out our evening show right here in your podcast feed, where we bring you the top news of the day. And make sure to subscribe to The Daily Signal Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach even more listeners by leaving a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts. We read all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day, and we'll be right back here with you at 5 p.m. for our Top News Edition.
1: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.